Good morning. No, no tanto. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Peter Schechter. I'm the director of the Adrian Arsch Latin America Center. And on behalf of all of my colleagues here at the Atlantic Council, I want to welcome you this morning. We're very, very pleased to have you for this fascinating event. And I want to start off by thanking the Skoll Foundation for sponsoring the event and all of our appreciation to the Social Progress Imperative, to Agora Partnership, and Chemonics for partnering with us today. Bretton Woods, a small town in New Hampshire, gave birth to um, a lot of things which are important here in Washington today. There's the World Bank and the IMF. They were Bretton Woods creations. There's a big 18-hole golf course on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. that's called Bretton Woods. But importantly for this morning, it was after Bretton Woods in 1944 that GDP became the main, sometimes the only, tool for measuring a country's economy. Now, at about that precise moment in 1944, Pan Am's DC-4 was crossing the Atlantic in 17 hours. Needless to say, the world has updated, yet the single-minded focus on GDP as the sole economic measurement of national development has not. And that means we've not adequately found a way to measure people's well-being until two years ago. The Social Progress Index has since then become a disruptive force and has helped reshape the discussion about national well-being. Recently, Paraguay, whose minister is with us today, has decided to adopt the index at a national level. Other countries, such as Costa Rica, are strongly considering doing the same. There's been a growing movement, both bottom-up and top-down, to redefine the measurements of development. And one of the main questions is, what do we do with GDP? Many believe it must become a complementary metric. Social progress and environmental outcomes, on the other hand, have gained momentum and seem more telling of our country's health, well-being, and progress. For us who follow Latin America, a region where 75 million people <coughs> came out of poverty in the last decade, the ability to measure social progress provides us with a key understanding of the interaction between citizens and governments, even in downtimes like these. So this is just a glimpse of what the Social Progress Index shows us. The SPI will serve as a backbone to our conversation today, but I leave it to our experts to put flesh on the bone. And we have a unique group of experts. Jose Molinas is the Minister of Planning for Paraguay. Matthew Bishop is the senior editor of The Economist and co-founder of the Social Progress Index. Marcela Escobari is the executive director of Harvard University's Center for International Development. And Raul Gatica is a senior director of Latin American Government Affairs at Abbott. This is a great group to discuss this important subject. And as we think about measuring a nation's development and social progress, we're lucky to start this conversation with a professional who's uniquely qualified to frame the coming discussion. Julie Katzman is a woman of many hats. She's executive vice president and chief operating officer of the Inter-American Development Bank, which she joined in 2009 as manager of the Multilateral Investment Fund. Since her appointment as executive VP, Julie has helped transform the bank and has focused on multi-sectoral dimensions of development challenges. Ms. Katzman has also been an ardent proponent of women's economic empowerment agendas. 
This year, she was named one of the top 50 businesswomen in Latin America by the Latin Trade Magazine and one of the top 10 influential women in global diversity by Diversity Global Magazine. She's going to speak for a few minutes, and generously, she's agreed to take some questions at the end. After Julie speaks, the center's deputy director, Jason Marzak, will introduce our panel in greater length and captain the rest of the discussion. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Julie Katzman. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you, Peter. And I have to say that uh, it is really heartening to look out and see so many people who are interested in talking about progress in a much more nuanced way than, as Peter said, we've been doing for so long. The IDB certainly thinks about progress in a much broader way. Sure, economic growth is without a doubt important and essential, but we consider our mission to be that of improving lives. And to us, what does that mean? Well, it means increasing access to quality basic services and increasing the sustainability of cities and countries, increasing the level of social inclusion in a society. And at the end of it all, being able to have the expectation that one's children will have a better life than you have had yourself. And so we think of that really as social progress. Now, it's easy to see, I think, to all of us that neither GDP nor the Gini coefficient are good enough. They really don't tell us where countries and how countries are succeeding and if and who is being left behind. And is a country planting the seeds today and tending them properly to ensure that people will have not only a prosperous future, but a future filled with well-being? So it's clear that there are other tools that are needed. And actually, you can go back to 1972, I think it is, when the fourth dragon king of Bhutan, one of the great titles out there in the world, started talking about gross national happiness. I think it's important to keep in mind that there is no index that's perfect. And that in general, when you create something, it gets better over time as people use it. We have a fair amount of experience with this at the IDB because sometimes people have reacted pretty badly when we first started these things. But over time, you know, they've really proven their worth. I'm sure that everybody here knows that the Social Progress Index is built on three basic pillars. The first being basic human needs, the second being foundations of well-being, and the third, opportunity. Now, you know, when any of these indices come out, I, of course, go immediately to look at where the countries of Latin America and the Caribbean are rated, and I focus on those. And I look, when first looking at the Social Progress Index, I, I think that as you look at Latin America as a whole in the index, it is indicative of the level of development in the region as a whole. Because in fact, you see that for most of the countries, the lowest score is on the opportunity side. And since most of the countries are now middle-income countries, you can see that that kind of has a, a basic sense to it. But similarly, I also tend to look at where are countries overperforming and underperforming relative to GDP? And I think that was a, a really good point Peter made, which is that it becomes, in this kind of context, something that is another dimension that lets you look at where things are falling. So it's really striking to see, okay, Uruguay is the number one country in the index in the region, and it's 24th. 
which is interesting because Uruguay's GDP per capita, $19,000, who's a couple rungs above it, France, surprisingly, and GDP per capita is $37,000. So you begin to sort of go, okay, now how do I compare them and what's driving this relative to that? Or in another case, Costa Rica and South Korea. So Costa Rica is 28th, South Korea is 29th, and South Korea's GDP per capita is more than twice that of Costa Rica's. But then you say, okay, so what's really driving that performance? In both cases, the opportunity score is the lowest score. In Costa Rica's case, that's because of access to advanced education. In Korea's case, it's about tolerance and personal rights. There's a real difference there. Now, they, they both score well in the foundations of well-being, and in fact, Costa Rica scores higher than South Korea. But if you look at what happened in the last election, you might ask some questions about that, because many would say that the reason that those who were in government lost the election is because they were unable to transfer that score on foundations of well-being off the coast where tourist centers are and into the rest of the country. Or you look at Uruguay, that also scores and outscores Costa Rica in foundations of well-being, which includes access to basic education and access to secondary education. But Uruguay has the highest high school dropout rate in the region other than Guatemala. And they succeed in graduating only 15% of students from the lowest quartile and less than 60% of students from the highest quartile. So again, you sort of look at that and go, hmm, maybe there's something we need to dig into there. Or last, it's interesting to see how the scores in our region are so heavily affected by the really low scores in security in almost every country, and how other countries' scores are so much more heavily affected on the downside by the issues of tolerance and inclusion and personal rights you get a good sense of region versus region when you look at all of this stuff. So I will say at the end of the day though, for positives and negatives, I'm a big believer in rankings. And I'll tell a short story here, which is one of the first rankings that the IDB created was something called the microscope. And it ranked the enabling environment for microfinance in all the countries in the region. And about five years ago at the big microfinance event, before the day kicked off, there was the launch of that year's microfinance microscope, and Argentina was rated, ranked last. So the Minister of Finance was first up on the agenda that morning. And I suddenly see him off at the side, like scribbling away very frantically. And he gets up and he says, I'd like to start with one comment. We will not be last next year. And it was a terrible microfinance environment. It's still not great, but they were not last. And they focused immediately after he spoke. He said, okay, what are the three things I have to do to get out from last? So I do think that rankings really can make a difference and they can't really can drive behavior because we're so competitive as human beings that we just don't want to be last. Or in fact, we most of the time really want to be first. So while I think that we'll, we'll see the index continue to improve, um, over time, and we'll be able to draw more and more conclusions, it's a really important tool for us to begin to, to apply across the board. I hope that there will be more subnationals, more Detroits, more Californias, more cities like the 10 in Colombia who will be adopting the index, or the regions, the, the neighborhoods in Bogota, so that 
policymakers can use this to focus public policy so that societies really can improve, so that opportunities can increase, and so that we really can change lives, which is what we're ultimately all about. So thank you very much. and. And uh, if anybody has anything they'd like to ask now, I'll do that now. Yes. And maybe if you'd introduce yourself um, at the start, that would be great. Hello, my name is Jose Miguel Pulido. I work in Mitsui & Co. in the public affairs team. Thank you very much. I wanted to ask, uh, are there any lessons that the private sector can take from this new index to sort of see how they should uh, tackle an environment where they're going to make an investment decision. Um, it seems that this is really focused for public sector, um, but seeing as how private sector is a huge actor in economic development in Latin America, uh, it'd be interesting to hear your opinions. Thank you very much. You bet. So, you know, actually, I think if you look at the breakdown of the scores in the index, this depends on how, what, what part of the private sector you're in, but here are a couple of thoughts, okay? You can, what jumps out at you as you look at certain countries is where government is not meeting the needs of the population. So from a private sector perspective, in a way, it's a reverse roadmap to say, ah, opportunity for the private sector. If you look at Peru and you see the score on basic education, in effect, you can see why there is a very successful business person who's created a very successful private school alternative for the emerging middle class. Right? I mean, the the 60 or 75 million people who've left poverty, the 100 million people who joined the middle class, all of whom are still vulnerable, but all of whom are incredibly focused on how do I create more opportunity for my kids. So I think that in many ways, it can create a roadmap for where government is not succeeding and where the private sector might fill in. And I'll, I'll pick another area within that, which is sustainability. I think that in many ways, in certain countries, this is also a this isn't only where government might be failing, but this is where the private sector is failing because sustainability is very much a joint responsibility. Okay, time for the panel. Thank you very much, Julie, for those um, excellent remarks to start the discussion, Mr. I think, uh, I think you've already started to do half the job of the panel and so far as laying out some of the uh, main points of the, of the index um, and, 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 and some of, of, of Matthew's job as well. I'm Jason Marzak. I'm the Deputy Director of the Adrian Arsh Latin America Center, and I'm delighted to be moderating our discussion today on a topic that frankly doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Um, you know, as Peter said at the beginning, there's increasingly clear consensus that economic growth is a far from complete way to measure how well a country and its people are doing but it's really difficult to come up with proxies for economic growth or to do it in a way that can be broadly applied and used across countries. And so one of the biggest struggles is really to pull up and think about progress. Um, how are we thinking about it? What are the components behind it? And how does that affect public policy as well? And I think there are a few places important as Washington to do this. So when we uh, met with the folks from the Social Progress Imperative a little less than a year ago, one of our first thoughts was we need to talk about this index and what it means among Washington stakeholders. 
And that's what we're here to do this morning. It's a typical light Friday morning at the Atlantic Council where we're talking about Gini coefficients, uh, among, among other things. Um, but this topic is especially relevant for us at the Adrian R. Schlott America Center since it builds on the basic concepts of the work we've done over the last year on social entrepreneurship and linking public good to private action, uh, including a report we released in May with our uh, senior fellow Gabrielle Zinni uh, on harnessing social impact investing and the August spotlight we did on social entrepreneurship. So I'm thrilled that we're joined here today by such a distinguished panel to uh, think further about this topic. You have their full bios, but I will briefly uh, go over them. To my left is Jose Molinas. Uh, Jose is the Minister of Planning for Paraguay. Um, uh, the minister became, you became minister uh, just under, just over two years ago, yeah. um, but is no stranger to Washington, uh, having spent uh, eight years uh, at the World Bank uh, here, uh, and in addition to be working at the World Bank, uh, is also a, uh, uh, has a career as an academic as well as a professor at the Catholic University in, in Asuncion. Uh, next to Jose is Marcella Escobardi. Marcella is the executive director of Harvard University Center for International Development. She has deep experience in a number of areas, including working really at the nexus of business and development, and has advised governments on how to harness the private sector to eradicate poverty. Next to her is Raul Gatica. Raul is um, the Senior Director for Latin America Government Affairs and, and Policy at the well-known global healthcare company, Abbott. Uh, Abbott's headquartered in Chicago, but Raul did not come here from Chicago. Raul came up from Buenos Aires uh, for this panel. Raul has over 25 years across industries from think tanks to the public sector and multinational corporations. And next to Raul is Matthew Bishop. Matthew is, uh, yes, he's the senior editor for The Economist, uh, but more importantly for today's discussion, he is a, the co-founder uh, and a member of the board of directors of the Social Progress Index. This was, this was Matthew's uh, idea with, with Michael Porter, correct, Matthew? Um, he is also the founder of, which I didn't realize until reading his bio, he's the founder of Giving to, the Giving Tuesday campaign, um, which for those who, who don't know, Matthew, I'm going to put a plug in, uh, the Giving Tuesday campaign is a global day of giving on the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving. So this year, Giving Tuesday is December 1st, right, mm -hmm. Matthew? So, um, so hashtag Giving Tuesday. Uh, he is also the author of several books with Michael Green, uh, who um, is the executive director of the Social Progress Imperative. I want to remind everyone that, yes, it's OK to tweet about what's being said. But if you're going to do that, please use the hashtag ACProgress. Um, we're going to leave. A, we're going to have a, a conversation here, um, try and keep as fluid as possible. And then we're going to leave. Uh, time for questions and, and answers at the end. Um, to start our conversation, though, and we're going to have short answers, but Matthew, a, a longer answer in the beginning. Uh, uh, Julie already previewed for you uh, the, some of the findings of the, of the Social Progress Index. But if you could start and explain a little bit about why the Social Progress Imperative started, decided to start the index, and also if you give a, a little overview of not only its three dimensions, but also how you, how you decided what would be those 12 components under each of those uh, uh, dimensions. Yeah, well, firstly, thanks for the Atlantic Council for hosting this. I, just, uh, I've, I sort of known Fred Kemp for many years, and it's uh, great to see that what was a, an organization that had, you know, maybe was seen as having had better days has really now re become exactly what, what was needed, which is a really robust think tank really looking at every aspect of, of this important um, foreign policy, Atlantic uh, 
debate that's going on. So it's great that you're taking on this issue yeah, as well. Um, I love Julie's remarks because they reflect exactly what we hoped for when the index was streamed up, which is to have a conversation about social progress within a common framework where most people agree about the key components. The, the idea actually originated in a discussion in Dubai uh, hosted by the World Economic Forum, uh, which has set up a bunch of things called Global Agenda Councils. And I chaired one on social innovation that was largely made up of social entrepreneurs. And our, and our task was to come up with a, an idea that would have global impact. And most of the social entrepreneurs sitting there said, well, we really feel very much we're working away in our national or local context, and there is no framework by which we can have a global conversation about what's working and what isn't working. And being the World Economic Forum, we, we looked at the Global Competitiveness Index and looked at how over a period of, of a couple of decades, um, that index had not only evolved considerably, as, as Julie said, as people got better data, but had actually stimulated this extraordinary conversation uh, at a political level uh, where governments really cared where they appeared on the rankings mm -hmm. and they wanted to get themselves up those rankings. And we wondered, you know, particularly as, as, as at a time when big questions were being asked about the usefulness of GDP, or certainly there was a growing awareness of the limitations of the GDP as a, as a guide to whether your society is getting better, particularly after the 2008 crash. Um, you know, could, could, we, you know, could we actually create a comparative benchmark where people were competing to deliver better social outcomes for their, for their, for their society? And so we, the World Economic Forum didn't want any of these global agenda councils to um, incur any expense for the World Economic Forum or any additional responsibilities of the World Economic <laughs> Forum. And so the, it was very much the idea was that if you have this idea, go out and make it happen. And so... Um, with, with uh, other members of the group, including people from Avena and Skoll. Um, and we went out and raised some money after a lot of consultation where it seemed that the, the, what was within our group clearly a demand, that, that demand was, was pretty broad-based, that people were unhappy with the, I think the Human Development Index was seen as better than GDP, but actually highly correlated with GDP and not very good on sustainability. Um, you know, we reached out to other people who were looking at the happiness measures, which again were interesting, but not really comprehensive or granular enough to actually be useful for that kind of competitiveness to take place. Um, and we raised a lot of money and, and we brought Michael Porter in and uh, Scott Stern to provide real uh, econometric rigor. And you know, we had advisors like Hernando de Soto also brought in to to give us some input. We also talked to people like Jeff Sachs and uh, Javier Martin uh, Salai, who, who's been in charge of the competitiveness index at the forum, and uh, people involved in, the, in some of the alternative measures of poverty as well. Um, and, and generally, we came up with this three-pillar approach that each pillar has four subcomponents, and that seemed to meet most people's sense of what, what does a... What, what does the good society look like, the well-functioning society look like? If, if it scores well on all three of those pillars and all four subcomponents, then that society would be doing very well by its citizens. And we then went out and, and tried, looked at all the vast amounts of data that existed, trying to find at a national level where 
uh, we had good enough data to, to, to make a meaningful comparison. And I would say, in, in the spirit of Julie's comments, that you know, the quality of data is pretty uneven in certain areas. And I think one of the big challenges we're going to take on over the next few years is can we be more effective in harnessing private sector data, such as is produced by Google and Facebook and mobile phone companies, to actually uh, accelerate the improvement in the quality of data on the ground, particularly in developing economies. But you know, we basically agreed these, we found enough data to make what we felt were good first starts uh, on each of those areas. And so the index went out at a national level two years ago um, for a small subset and, and for 140 countries last year and this year. And what's been interesting for me particularly is that what we initially saw as being a national competition between countries, mm. we're actually seeing some of the fastest adoption at a city and regional level uh, particularly in Latin America, but not exclusively so. The European Union has just, Commission has just published a study of all its all the regions in the European Union, um, which it's going to use to inform its uh, solidarity and resilience. Matthew, I, I, assume, I assume, just, just jumping here, I assume there was some debate on should these <coughs> be the three components, should these be the 12 dimensions? Um, can you explain a little bit if, you know, what's yeah, I mean, internal I think there, there was some debate, but there was, there was definitely a sense that if you look at Human Development Index in particular, it was very good uh, for countries coming from, the from, from low levels of development to medium levels of development, but it wasn't very useful once you started to go into the middle levels and, and towards higher levels of development. And so we felt that the three stages approach probably better fit um, the, um, the, the path of development in most countries. Now, we're not saying that they're sequential. There's quite a lot of overlap and, and so forth, but it felt like there was basic needs. There's something, as you move up the Maslow hierarchy or whatever, you get, you know, you want higher degrees of, uh, of, um, you know, of quality of living and so forth. And then, and then this whole area of opportunity and freedom got into this very important issue around rights. And, you know, we're seeing some of the most interesting findings around sort of uh, LGBT yeah. uh, rights, women's empowerment, and so forth yeah. that weren't really being picked up in some of the other indices either. Yeah, I was particularly struck by LGBT mm. and other things mm. being a part of the index, which yeah. I think is very forward-looking. Minister Molina's Paraguay is a, is a pioneer in its nationwide acceptance of the Social Progress Index. What, what pushed your, your and, and I think you in particular have been a pioneer insofar as um, pushing the, the uh, importance of, of not only the Social Progress Index, but the basic tenets behind the index. What, what, what were some of the motivating factors behind uh, Paraguay uh, really being one of the, the leaders in, in Latin America and, frankly, the world in, insofar as um, embracing this methodology? Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Jason, for, for the invitation to this, to this panel. And <clears throat> to answer your, your question, it's important to, to see that Paraguay is a young democracy. Starting in 1989, <clears throat> We have, uh, we have ended uh, more than three decades of dictatorship. And when people start expressing themselves, expressing their, their preference in the country, it was a very clear that the emphasis was to live better. To, and that implied to have a very important social uh, agenda. That was expressed with <clears throat> a lot of clarity in our 1992 constitution. Mm -hmm. And in this democratic uh, context, the country was learning, and is still learning, uh, <clears throat> by doing how to put the social progress agenda at the center of government, business, and civil society. 
and also how to start working, working together towards, uh, towards that end. In this context of social preferences and uh, <clears throat> increasing importance of the social agenda, when we learn about the social progress uh, index, a coherent framework and a well-structured way to monitor, to, to monitor progress, that, that creates a lot of synergy with, with the moment of the, of the country. Yeah. And uh, the, the social progress index contributed to, to this process of putting at the center the social agenda in many different ways. One important way was to contribute to have a shared vision for 2030, and also uh, to, to have consensus, objectives, and strategic lines within the National Development Plan for 2030, to create also a council, a more structured con a council between government, private sector, and civil society leaders mm -hmm. that takes this medium-term uh, development framework and uh, <clears throat> work on promoting the social progress uh, agenda with it, and also start guiding the national resources with, uh, through the national budget to be aligned to this mm. vision and to this strategic line of the national development plan. And equally important to have a concrete way of monitoring, of monitor progress that uh, at a different level of the policy cycle, at the input level, at the output level, and the at the outcomes level, which is the emphasis in the social progress index. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's, it's, I think probably, um, this is probably a, a best case scenario when, when, when Matthew and the others were thinking about the indexes, we can, let's actually use this for governments to, to think about their future plans, not only their plans, but I think incredibly importantly, how they actually resource allocation and resource allocation along some of those different, different lines. Uh, Marcella, you've spoken about issues of technology, entrepreneurship, and and competitors in a wide range of, 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 of different forms. What do you see as the key contributions of the social progress index, um, especially looking even more broadly to the development agenda overall? How do you mm -hmm. see this, this, the index um, really affecting the agenda? And also, um, you know, I asked Matt about the different, the 12 components and, and, and the mm -hmm. three dimensions of it. Um, if, if, would, you have, would you suggest other, other components? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's uh, it's an extremely valuable contribution, right? And and for the things that Julie said, we should people, everybody, governments, businesses, they manage what they measure. And if what we really want to create is a better society that meets human needs, that provides opportunities, that is sustainable, then we got to try to measure those things, yeah. right? GDP was meant to be a measure of output, uh, not welfare, but because it was kind of you know widely used and remotely consistently applied, it became a very useful measure, and and it was used for these purposes. The problem is that this is hard, right, to measure this, and which doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I think what I value of this index is that you know you guys have put a stake on the ground, on this is the way we're going to define it, and uh, and it opens the conversation as to you know these are pretty good, mm -hmm. but these are going to evolve, and I think that's important. And I think the other valuable thing is um, is that it allows countries to benchmark, right, and in the most disaggregated way, probably the most useful way, I mean, the indexes that, that uh, Julie was talking about, it allows a country to say, you know, for this level of GDP, compared to my peers, you know, I'm doing pretty well on sustainability, but pretty lousy on gender parity. Mm -hmm. Okay, it gives me an area to focus, and yeah. I think that's, that's extremely valuable. 
I think we still have the challenge to understanding many of these issues and what's the theory of change behind each of these categories. But I think it opens that conversation. Would there be other components that you would, you would, uh, you would suggest to look at? Um, I think, uh, I think, like I said, I think this is a good start. There are others. The way that we are thinking about uh, inclusive growth um, um, is moving to this definition of trying to include people into networks of opportunity, and I think trying to measure that in inclusion mm -hmm. um, with the kind of data that you were talking about is going to become a very interesting yeah. frontier. Yeah, well, I would love to pick up on the question. There was a question for Julie about the private sector. Yes, and, and I, I like and, and I'd love to pick up on that question with with you and how a company like Abbott. How important are indices like this in, in making decisions mm. of how, how, how much the private sector look at it and how much do, do are these important for business? I, I will answer your question, but I'd like to be a, a little bit provocative. Please, please do. Uh, bringing the, the perspective from the private sector, because <clears throat> here is key the commitment of the behavior from the policy decision makers. There is not perfect index, but as Julie mentioned, when the Minister of Finance saw a very tough figure to say, oh, I will change this. It's a personal commitment. It's a commitment from the government to change. If we are not seeing this commitment, if we are not seeing the rule of law necessary, private sector, there is not being an, a, a contributor to improve the opportunity. Yeah. We have the commitment to improve the quality of the life of the people in, in our region. But from, from my personal view, this, those are the two key pillars to, to move ahead and take advantage of the opportunities mm -hmm. that the index, index can, can bring us. Yeah. In, uh, in, our opportunity, in, uh, in our experience working in, in Latin America, we try to leverage those opportunities. We believe that there is uh, critical areas where the public sector can contribute, are in the healthcare, in the judicial education, but uh, private sector can bring their experience, uh, their investment to develop those areas to contribute to improve the quality of life of the people in, in, in this. Through the private-public partnership, contributing to uh, inclusion of the people, to improve with governance, to avoid corruption or lack of transparency, and, uh, and bring more investment to improve the quality of technology or the education of, of the people. And, and how does the business community, how, how much do you look at, so this, you look at this index, you look at how governments are, benchmark, are benchmarking within it, and is this helping, index like this helping to make uh, investment Definite, decisions from Abbott? De definitely, it's a complex matrix uh, that we take into account to define where are the, the opportunities to mm -hmm. contribute to improve the development of the, of the societies. Because when we are seeing uh, basic health needs not uh, pro with the solution from the public sector, we bring the opportunity to work together to improve these areas. One, uh, we saw the opportunity to e contribute to education of, of the physicians or to improve the quality of the research that those people have. Or how we can contribute with, uh, IDB has been instrumental in Latin America to improve the infrastructure. But with one shot of a vaccines, we can move fast to protect those uh, population when 
invest in infrastructure take a long time and a lot of money. Yeah. So those are the areas that we yeah. definitely we are seeing areas of opportunities and the index brings a yeah. good information for us. Matthew, one of the things that I, um, I, I thought was incredibly helpful in looking at the index, and, and Julie mentioned this in her opening comments, is, is the, how the index groups underperformers and overperformers with similar, similar levels of, of GDP. I think that's incredibly interesting because the index is a, is, is a, is a complement to, to looking at GDP. And I think in, in looking at that, I was struck by the fact that, that Nicaragua, the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, is an overperformer in the index. In fact, it joins Costa Rica and Uruguay as three of the top four overperformers in the entire world. Uh, on the index when you compare it to, to GDP levels. But then there's wealthier nations like the United States, uh, France, or even Israel that are underperformers. So how do, you, how, is this, how do you explain this? How do you explain that, um, is, it, is it just a mere fact that, that, some, that, that the wealthier countries um, have a greater amount of GDP and therefore um, don't allocate it to other resources rather than social progress? Well, I mean, I think it, in a way it reinforces the reason uh, the validity of the reason why we did this index because it shows that GDP is not the um, be all and end all, that you can have very similar levels of GDP and vastly different uh, social progress outcomes. And you know, what we're hoping to do with this index is, is to create new peer groups in a way that you know, one of the, if, you, if you actually take, as we've done, just the outcomes, the social outcomes, and then you compare them with GDP measures, you actually find um, you know, really the policy matters, but also culture matters. I think one of the things with Nicaragua is very strong family culture that seems to reflect um, that there's sort of inherent uh, welfare support for, in some ways, um, for the population that's been quite helpful, I think, in surviving the revolutions and upheavals and things mm -hmm. over, over the years and coming through despite relatively weak economy. Um, but, you know, Deloitte, who's one of the partners uh, uh, in the project, um, has done a very interesting analysis of the UN Global Development Goals that have just been adopted and, and used the US government's main global economic forecast for the next 15 years. And if you just simply rely on the forecast for GDP growth, and obviously that is a fiction, but it's the best we've got. Um, over the next 15 years, simply on existing policies, we barely move the needle globally on social progress. So we don't get anywhere near to achieving the global development goals. Um, and so, but yet, yet if we were to move towards whatever magic formula it is that say Costa Rica has, um, and was to, we're able to spread that to countries that don't have that magic formula, then um, that combined with the kind of forecast GDP growth we're talking about, would comfortably see us achieve the global development goals. And so there's a tremendous amount to play for. And I think mm -hmm. these peer comparisons, I mean, comparing Uruguay and France, I mean, who would have done that right. before? But what an right. interesting question. And I think one of the things we're also going to, I'm, I'm, I'm also wondering is, you know, we have these countries like Norway and the Scandinavian countries at the top of the list at the moment, but they're incredibly homogenous populations. And you start to wonder, you know, they're now starting to experience significant migration. Europe, we all know about what's going on in the European mm -hmm. Union regarding that. You know, does that start to undermine their particular models of, of social progress in ways that 
um, you know, we'll see them not do so well in the list in 10 or 15 years' time. So there's all sorts of really fascinating questions that we can start to delve into. Now we have this common framework of, of analysis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This and as, as we think about this, you know, secret sauce of Costa Rica or what checks or the total number, right? What, what does it mean that Nicaragua is better than France on this? Um, I think it's important to ask these questions because there's something that these countries are doing right. But in a way, and I, I totally agree that the index in itself allows people to compete. So having a whole number is very valuable just to get it out there and get mm -hmm. people, you know, their competitive juices going. But you know they're not substitutes, right? These all of these things. So being able to say, oh yeah, you know we did, and and they don't all cost the same, right? So to say, okay, Costa Rica is doing great in education, but you know maybe not so much on, uh, and yet you know it might get a, a a higher number because it has done a couple things really well. When you put them together, because these are not substitutes, you might get an uneven picture of whether mm -hmm. this country is really doing great, yeah. right? So that's something I think where most of the value comes is as you disaggregate it, because not only are they not substitutes, but sometimes they're complementary, right? Which are hopefully interesting conversations that come from this. Like, if you have education, then it makes a lot of these other things possible. Mm -hmm. Or if you have X, then that's the binding constraint for having social progress mm -hmm. on a bunch of different things. What things can money buy and what things can't money buy? Um, and I think that can happen when you disaggregate and, and, and see what the comparisons are. Mr. Belize. Two quick things to, to add on that. I mean, I think one is that when you start to break down within the country, comparing cities or regions, you're getting even more interesting comparisons in a way because you're getting much more similar entities. And so I'm very excited, for example, I mean, it looks like the Bay Area in California is going to break itself into six regions for the purposes of social progress index <laughs> and really compare you know, how different parts of that, part, uh, that, that, that area work. And I think we, we're about to, I'm going to Bogota in a couple of weeks' time to, to, to talk about the Colombian cities index, which we actually have back... Uh, calculated back to 2009, so for, for the 10 biggest cities in Colombia. And, and now we're going to have a very interesting conversation with the new mayor of Bogota, and, 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 and hopefully this will have a big impact on his uh, strategy for the city. Mm -hmm. The other thing is on the private sector front, we've, we've also found, again, in Latin America, which has really been, in many ways, the pioneer for a lot of what we've been doing with Social Progress Index, um, both Coca-Cola and Natura uh, in mm -hmm. Brazil have been using Social Progress Index to try and examine their uh, strategies around corporate citizenship and social responsibility. Where can they have the biggest impact in the communities where they're based? So I think there starts to be a private yeah. sector yeah. element there as well. Well, you want to jump in? Then I have a I want yes, to I'd, I'd like to ask to, to a question to the to minister, because uh, it's interest to learn how the policy decision makers take into account the index to develop the public agenda to understand the priorities. Because from the private sector, we can use those indicators just to promote the discussion. Because we are seeing the opportunities. We're seeing how we can contribute to improve. But how the, the public sector use the index to build the agenda? Great. And actually, I would like to, to come back also in answer your question <clears throat> to, to, the, to the performance over performance issue. Mm -hmm. I think that when we talk about performing, overperforming or underperforming, we are, we are talking about the relationship between the social progress index to, the, to GDP. But that is only a portion of the picture. So we need, as Marcela has mentioned, we need to, uh, to have a clearer idea of what's drive change, or what uh, has 
we, the economy says, what is the production function of social progress? Definitely one element, an important element, are economic resources. But there are other types of resources which are very important, like mm -hmm. the incentive to policymakers, the trust that, uh, that can be generated in society that we usually call the, the, the social capital, yeah. the, in, the monitoring uh, system that we put in place to see whether what we planned is being uh, effectively taken in, uh, to the ground. And, and also, what are the, the incentives for, <clears throat> for uh, rewarding or punishing uh, yeah. uh, the, 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 public, the, the public officials? And keeping scores is a very effective one, as Julie has already, already mentioned. So, and I think if we start uh, taking those elements that we have, we need to create trust, and a way to create trust is to have a common vision of, of, the, of the society, and the Social Progress Index can contribute to that. We need to, uh, to create trust also by working together from different sectors, from the private sector, from the government, and uh, from the academia, and, <clears throat> and, civil, and civil society. And having a common set of goals and a, a way to, to monitor facilitate the work, this working together and facilitates also the co-production mm -hmm. from the public sector, the private and civil, and civil society. Innovation also uh, is, uh, is fostering by working with, with, the, with the academia, the private sector and, uh, and, and, and the government. And having that framework uh, facilitates the, the process. And also uh, in order to, to keep more mileage to the process of incentivating policymakers, we need to adapt the, the global social progress index to a national uh, pro, uh, <clears throat> social progress index. Why? One, one reason is that a government administration usually lives for four to six years in, La in Latin America. And when we use the, the global social progress index, we use harmonized data by international organizations that is with a lack to two to three years. So sometimes three quarters of the administration is already uh, uh, passed. Right, right. So we need to have a faster way of uh, measuring the government's uh, or society performance from one year to, to another. And that should be like a, a requirement for uh, if we want to, uh, to take more mileage on the incentive to policy, to policy makers. Uh, so that, that is something very important, and we are in Paraguay in that, uh, in that process. We would like to have in, in the next few months uh, a social progress uh, index adjusted to, to, our, uh, to our current data that allows us to measure the performance in 2015 in early 2016. Uh, this is critical because uh, something that we are learning in, in our region in Latin America is the lack <coughs> of sustainable national policies or national public policies to develop uh, or to obtain benefit from this development. In countries where we are seeing it's a national policy, no matter with the administration change every four or to six years, we are seeing the good, uh, the good uh, results. If not, uh, every four, six years, we are seeing the changes or something that we, we saw in the past is uh, public sector waiting, private sector doing something that is not part of our core of business. It's something that are part of the areas that the government must, must do. And I think going to that point, um, 
how, how, how is, in, in, in Paraguay, how are, how, what, are, what are the plans to be able to ensure that the index is, is used by subsequent um, governments? And then I think my other question kind of along those lines is, you know, Marcel was talking about, you know, resource allocation and that some things are, are more expensive to do than, than others. And, you know, you're the, you're, this, this, is your, this is your portfolio. Uh, so as you're thinking about, as you're thinking about Paraguay 2030 and you're thinking about resource allocation, how do you decide between, you know, the, the, the 12 different uh, uh, components of the index and, and where you want to be uh, putting uh, uh, state funds? Yeah. So the first way to nationalize the social progress agenda in, a, in, in, in Paraguay was to, to take the contribution in a broader sense of having a national development plan. The Social Progress uh, Index, according to other, uh, uh, in complement with other uh, national initiatives, we, uh, we come, up, come up together with a midterm vision to, to 2030. That's gonna uh, encompass four administrations in the, in, in the country. Mm -hmm. And so we agree on a common vision, on a set of uh, concrete objectives actually 72 objectives, 39 are quite straightforward related to the social progress uh, index. And also a structure at the national strategic team, uh, which is comprised from government, but also a private sector, from civil society and, uh, and, the, and the academia to promote that vision and, that, uh, and, and those policies, and also to engage in, the, in a discussion with the monitoring system for, yeah. from, uh, for, for, from results. So that's, that's the way a midterm, and also uh, in Paraguay, the National Development Plan, constitutionally, is mandatory from all public sector and indicative for the private sector. Mm -hmm. So we are in, uh, ensuring a connection of the national budget with that, uh, with that vision and with the monitoring system that are, are all consistent with the Social Progress Index. Just looking at public policy, Marcella, do you, how do you see the social progress index results shaping what we mean by development? I mean, do you see, have you started to see the results of the index permeating more broadly into the, you know, broader development community or, um, you know, there's obviously successes of the index mm -hmm. in countries like Paraguay and Colombia and Brazil, but, mm -hmm. but even more, more broadly, how are you seeing some of the this, well, this I'm, um, I, I mean, just to, to, re to respond to what you were saying, this is a very exciting development that I think, I imagine you probably didn't even conceive of when you were thinking about this, that countries would take them internally, domestically, and think about, you know, doing, a, doing um, measuring this at the city level. And just mm -hmm. to give a little parenthesis on some research that we've done, how this could be very interesting on the governance level, right? Um, this, uh, our, one of our programs, Evidence for Policy Design, did this study in India where it says people don't really vote based on accountability of what your governor has actually done. Yeah. In India, actually, if you have a criminal record, you are likelier to get elected, right, like in the wow. next election. So there's this disconnect. People, you know, vote for party reasons, for ethnic reasons, for, and they did a study on showing, on a nonprofit showing um, a basically accountability scorecard. Have you built the roads? Have you done excellent education? And this kind of very impartial information of what had happened on the previous um, government made a difference on voting behavior. And I think if, 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 if you know, at the local level, you're able to have data uh, that is much more interesting than what you're able to gather at the international level. So, um, so it being taken on at the at the local level is a very exciting mm -hmm. phenomenon that can change. I think not only give very concrete goals, but change the way people um, 
raid and uh, uh, their government. Yeah, and, especially interesting mm -hmm. in, a, in a region like Latin America where um, 90 percent of the population is going to be urbanized by, I think, by 2030. And so it's really cities that are going to define the, the future trajectory of, of the region. Um, Matthew, so we, we're seeing this in, 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 in local, at a local <clears throat> level in Paraguay, in Brazil, in Colombia. What about outside, in Latin America, but, but even beyond, where, where are you seeing um, either currently or on, the, or on the horizon the social progress index being implemented at a more local level? Well, I mean, I mean, firstly, I, mean, I, I think to your last point, I mean, one of the most interesting studies that I've seen has been actually in the Brazilian Amazon in the state of Para, where 144 municipalities all compared each other on a light basis. And what was interesting was that obviously being, you know, the environment being so key to their mm -hmm. uh, sense of social well-being and to the outside world's concern about that region, their environmental data was much better than... Uh, that they all had on a common basis was much better than some of the stuff we've been able to do at the national level. And so it was a much richer uh, test case of policy differences between uh, different municipalities. Um, so even before you start to get into the urbanization issue, and I would love to get the C40 to be um, signed up and using this and agreeing common data uh, to allow the world's biggest cities to compare each other. But we're hoping that, I mean, Rio has agreed to do a social progress index for um, for the city uh, to, to, as part of its Olympic legacy um, work next summer. So we're going to get an announcement there. As I say, the European Union, it's been very interesting how um, the, they've wanted to, to, to sort of ground their regional grant uh, and support policy in more rigorous data and a common framework. And so they just published the other week a first attempt at doing that. And I think um, we've got high hopes that will, that will actually start to move serious amounts of money within the European Union. So the Columbia Cities Index is going to be, I'm going to be interested to see what the mayor yeah. thinks. I mean, what, I mean, to your point, though, I mean, I think what struck me about this is that it's moved so much faster than we would have anticipated in terms of adoption, which I think tells you how profound the demand is now for, for governments and people running cities to be able to engage with their people the public's demand for something better than GDP, because the public knows that GDP doesn't really get you very far. It gets you some of the way, but it doesn't get you answers to all the things they are feeling most motivated about. And I think we're very interested in um, you know, can, how quickly can we now engage the academic community more broadly in actually doing those rigorous uh, comparisons of different places that perform you know, have very different outcomes for the same amount of GDP so that we can really learn from this. Because, I mean, I think every year that goes by, the conversation can get a lot richer and we can really start to, to, to learn, you know, what, what, what differences are really telling us something important and what's the noise. I have a, I have a couple more questions, and then I promise we'll leave a lot of time for questions and answers from the audience because I assume uh, pretty much most people are here are here because they're incredibly interested in the topic, and so I'm sure most people actually have, have questions. But... On the city level, Raul, what, is, what do you see as the role of, and I, you can't speak on behalf of the entire business community, but maybe at least on behalf of, of a company like, like Abbott, what, is, what do you see as the role of the business community insofar as helping to foster uh, 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 um, the, the, the development um, in, in cities to, to be responsive to some of the um, results that are being seen from the index? First of all, we are uh, instrumental players 
of, of the life in, at, the, at the community level. Because we are there, our people is there, our activity is there, so we are impacting what is happening at, at the community level. Second is, being part of the community, we contribute to different areas. Uh, we contribute to promote the, uh, the transparency and the inclusion of the people. We promote to protect the right of those people. We contribute to education. We contribute in the, in the health arena to develop access. And uh, if the thing is not going well, it's because we are not doing also our advocacy to, uh, to the authorities to develop the framework that we need to, to do our, our activity. What we are not seeing transparency in the interactions uh, with, uh, within this market. We are part of this. We can discuss and put the rules and influence the, the rules to, to have more transparency. When we have inclusion uh, or diversity, respect the diversity with our own employees, we are promoting those employees as a citizens of those community implement the same behavior in their community. We have the discussion with uh, authorities to promote the labor code or the labor regulatory uh, environment to do the inclusions. When we educate our suppliers in governance and how to do that, how to interact, how to, how to discuss the, the procurement process, we are transfer our knowledge, our governance uh, rules to the, to our uh, agents, and they do the same in the in the community. When we are paying taxes, and we do in the in the right way that you must do, uh, we also we are contributing. So my point here is, the index reflect what is happening in the real life, and we the private sector is part of this. So we have the power to influence. We will need the, the commitment of the policy decision makers uh, because they will establish the, the regulatory framework and they will have the, the behavior based on the vote uh, that the citizens provide. But we are, we are part of this, uh, of this black box that will provide the, the, the solution. Marcel, what do you, uh, I have a question, what question for you and last question. What do you see insofar as the potential, you know, the, the impediments to the broader development community um, taking on um, um, some of the, the findings from, from the index? <coughs> Obviously, the Inter-American Development Bank is very committed to the, to the SPI and its findings, but um, I'm sure we don't see that across all development agencies across, across all countries. And so what are, what are some of the impediments that, that you see, and this is something Matt might, Matthew might want to jump on as, as well? It's a good question. I think that it, the impediment is not because of the index, but because this is hard, right? Both measuring and, uh, and, and, and trying to understand how to move the needle on how to combat poverty, create opportunity. We don't have the answers for many of these, right? So when you create indices, you can, you can have one or two things. So for out, you know, input base or output base, right? So we, for example, at the CID have a, uh, an indicator on the complexity of an economy. We know and have proven that the complexity of an economy can lead to an increase in GDP growth. Mm -hmm. And then we say, we'll rank you on your complexity, and then you have to figure out how you increase it. Go experiment, let a thousand flowers bloom, but we can tell you that if you increase the complexity of what you produce, you will grow, okay? In other times, you can say, okay, I know these inputs, and, and these inputs will get you a better result. So let's go do the inputs, right? The, the um, World Economic Forum indicators tried to do that. Right, some of those inputs affect growth, 
many of them don't. It's yeah, a very hard yeah. thing to, to push. So when we have things that are difficult that you're trying to measure around the world, like education, mm -hmm. right? We actually very difficult to measure what we're trying to measure. You're trying to measure learning. You're trying to measure quality of education. Those things don't exist. And when they exist, they exist maybe at the national level, PISA scores or whatnot. But we don't have an output measure that say, OK, you get this score you are improving the opportunities of kids that actually go to school. You do the best that you can by measuring enrollment, literacy rates, but there's still inputs, yeah. right? So I think the question is, um, well, if I do all these things, am I actually going to get a better education system and create the opportunities? Well, maybe, I don't know. And, and you know, have we created an actual theory of change or how we're going to affect learning? Mm -hmm. So I think the challenge that it presents is one that we have in the development community that gets solved by academics researching, you guys discussing, you guys implementing, and, and us continuing to answer the question, how do we affect what we are trying to affect, which is quality of education, yeah. and what are the inputs that are going to vary by the context? And that's just the nature of, of mm -hmm. trying to move the needle in development. Yes, it's, let me provide please. an example. In, in Costa Rica, Costa Rica, we have a vascular plant. And, uh, and there is a hub there with not just Abbott, other companies invest to develop these kind of medical devices. But they need to improve the quality of the education of the engineers, of the technician we have working in, in, in the plant. So the government open to have an interaction to see how we, they can improve the quality of the education at the university, not just uh, at the university outcome, but also at the technical school, because those are the profiles that need it. And there is the kind of uh, public and private interaction based on the needs to develop, the answer from the government creating the conditions, and articulate the, the response. Yeah, and I'm sure, Mr. Millis, these are questions that you're grappling with in, in Paraguay. How do, how you know, I mean, how do you measure, how do you effectively measure the outputs of the investments, in, in, in a, a budgetary investments in these different components versus strictly measuring the inputs? Yes. <clears throat> I, I think that what, it, what is important is to have a, a, a complementary system of measurement. We, we know that uh, the quality of life is better captured by outcomes. It's not only uh, money spent in education, but what children learn in, in, in school. And in that sense, the philosophy that, that proposed the Social Progress uh, Index is is very <clears throat> good one, it's a very useful one. But we also need to make a decision on how to allocate money. So we need to have a theory of what are the, the, the best production function to, pro to produce those outcomes and, uh, in or, and use that at the output level to guide also the, uh, the allocation of money in the, in the, in the budget. So having a, a system of that monitor inputs, outputs, and outcomes is what uh, we need yeah. for, for policy making. Okay, I'm sure there are a lot of questions. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and, um, and identify yourself. We have people walking around with microphones. And I promise you, if there are no questions from the audience, I have a lot more. Um, so, uh, but I want to make sure that we're taking time from everybody here. Yes, Hi, please uh, identify yourself. Sure, my name is Keith Mantel. Actually, I was a fellow here a few weeks ago uh, through the Atlantic Council. Uh, my question is actually, I'm curious, looking at the advisory board for um, the social uh, progress imperative, I noticed that, or not noticed, so, so is on that board. 
And I know he's such a strong advocate for uh, land and property rights. And I'm just curious to see, uh, I'm kind of actually surprised rather that he wasn't more forceful because that's his, his big pitch is land and property rights, that that's not represented more uh, on your index and how you plan to address that in the future. Thanks, thanks Keith. Well, I mean, I think one of the, he's been a very uh, helpful advisor, um, as have all the advisory board members. Um, one of the things that, Billy, on the last discussion that we really argued a lot about and ended up reaching, a, ending up with a very strong conclusion was that we would be entirely focused on um, outcomes rather than um, inputs and so forth. And I, and I think that has influenced the extent to which you know, we, we were going to put property ownership and so forth and property rights uh, as a separate category. I mean, there is it's clearly part of the opportunity um, set that we're doing. But the fact that we've gone down the non-economic outputs route doesn't mean that we're not interested in all the questions about what contributes to that. I mean, I'm very passionate about financial inclusion as a as a cause that I think is very important to development. We are not measuring financial inclusion uh, in the index, but I'm very interested to study how financial, in, how financial inclusion correlates uh, with the social progress measures that, that we have, because that will tell us, I think, a lot more about what strategies around financial inclusion will work. I think, I think the same will apply for a variety of the uh, issues that Hernando talks about, and I think you know, he, he would be the first to to, to say when you push him that property rights for him are the most visible um, and most instantly usable uh, economic tools of inclusion, but that he sees it as part of a much broader process of you know, how do you take people who are excluded and in the informal economy and bring them in in a meaningful way into the formal economy so that you set their uh, all sorts of aspects of their capital, including their human capital and so forth, Free and so you know I think in that sense it's a, it's a broader um, toolkit than that but it is you know I think this question of have we created the right framework of non-economic outputs that sort of broadly allows everyone to be on a common platform having the same basic agreed framework that they can have a conversation within I think I think most people feel this is a good enough start to be very widely adopted. Um, and then, you know, everyone's everyone's has to kind of take some cognizance of what other countries, other places are doing, how they look, um, and, and find these interesting peer groups. And then you can actually um, you know, start to go more, much more deeply into what's brought about. Is it the complexity of the economy? Is it the property rights structure? Is it the financial inclusion structure? I think it's an interesting point as well that you bring up that the in, I don't think we've talked about this yet that the index is constantly evolving as well. Hmm. Um, and so that there is some, there's a, a basic tenets of it that you, that you need to have to make sure that the results are comparable year by year, but that things like financial inclusion and I'm sure a whole host of other issues are ones that you're, you're grappling with insofar as how do you integrate mm. moving forward. Yeah, and I think we have, I mean, this question of formality versus informality I think is one that's yeah. a very interesting debate at the moment. Other, other questions? Yes, please. 
Hi, I'm Andrea Muta. I'm here with the uh, Adrian Arsh Latin America Center with the Atlantic Council. I was just curious to know more about the um, sustainability, the ecosystem sustainability component of the index. One of the major um, elements of it is uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And I was just curious to see how um, how much is that impacting the lives on the ground in terms of uh, the emissions? In, uh, is it in absolute terms? Do you take into account the big discussion of developing versus developed countries? And do you think that uh, recent commitments um, that were made by developing countries uh, as we near the uh, Paris meetings are going to make a big difference in that going forward? Yeah, I mean, the, the sustainability stuff most visibly appears in the foundations of well-being pillar and the, and the question there we're trying to answer is does the geographical entity have a sustainable environmentally sustainable ecosystem um, in which you know a variety of different indicators are being used I mean I think you know we we're not as an organization able to take a position on what they're going to decide in Paris and you know to what extent it's fair to burden developing countries with uh, paying for the crimes of the rich world in, in, in environmental terms. I mean, that, I think that's something for, that, that is way beyond our ability to say anything useful. I mean, what we can say is, you know, does this country look good or bad on, on its ecosystem sustainability? And I think there, there seems to be you know, reasonable data on things like carbon emissions that, that, that get us somewhere. And it certainly gets us beyond what's in the Human Development Index uh, historically and, and, and allow some good conversations. But I mean, obviously, these are huge topics about global governance that, um, you know, just have to be addressed at the, uh, on a global stage by policy. I think that I think an index like this is never going to be able to answer that, that sort of complex political negotiation. And, and the index, I mean, I think you raised a point, Andre raised a point about how, how political the index can be as well. I mean, the fact that, you know, countries are, are, are looking at their aggregate score, but also their score in certain categories. I'm sure that you, you've seen that probably generate some pushback at certain points from countries saying, why, why am I ranked, you know, uh, uh, you know in, the, in the bottom tier? I should be ranked in, in, in a middle tier. Um, and mm -hmm. I think this is a question, you know, for you, Matthew, but also, you know, for Mr. Molinas as well, insofar as, you know, have you even seen in, in Paraguay, have you seen um, certain, you know, some, some of your colleagues push back um, on some of the, the uh, rankings of, of, of the country and, and, and say, you know, really, we don't agree with this and we don't, think, we don't think Paraguay is doing as poorly in this category or we think we should be doing better in another category. Have you seen that pushback? No, not yet. No, no, not, yet. Not, not yet. But that, that's a possibility indeed. I, let me do a, a comment on, on the <clears throat> environmental sustainability. Uh, if, if we take the spirit of the SPI, as Matthew was <clears throat> telling us, to, to go beyond GDP, this is a, it's a great improvement mm -hmm. in the sense that it puts uh, within the indicators certain things that are measured and uh, also certain things that are ranking countries and, 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 and policies and put on the table for, for a debate. So uh, I'm sure it still could be an improvement, but uh, it's already a, a big step from, uh, from what GDP delivers. Marcel, did you want to jump in as well? And no, I mean, I think what you mentioned is, uh, is true, that, there might, that these are probably very political 
processes. Everybody wants to be good at one thing, and uh, and there's many indices that uh, they get developed for for that reason. But I think uh, and and there are people who are, or countries that are going to you know study to the test, kind of to get a higher score. And you know, but I think that is not going to be the majority, and uh, and it's going to be a small cost to pay as part of doing any indices versus you know all the serious nations that are going to see this and, and adopt them at a much deeper level. Yeah, I think there's enough, <clears throat> enough scope within most countries' uh, potential uh, improvement that they can take various different paths uh, to rise up the index that may reflect their internal political you know, spectrum. You know, I think you know, some, some countries will, you know, there will be governments at times that are probably more conservative with regard to family values or whatever, LGBT equality and so forth that may, you know, lag in that area and choose to emphasize other aspects of economic opportunity. And, you know, I think it's good that there is scope to reflect both sides or many sides of the political spectrum within each country. Otherwise, you know, you'll get a government use the index and another government come in and throw it out. What we want is a common basis. And I, and I think the other aspect, though, is that it is clear that I think that at some level there is a, an emerging global consensus around you know, what the good society yeah. looks like and every country, whether conservative or liberal, you know, is increasingly wanting to know where it fits on that spectrum and the more we can have a constant you know, empirical framework for, for talking about that, I think the better. I think, and I think it will, it will shape politics. Yeah. Uh, well, with a more global, with a more global, yeah. uh, a global uh, imprint than it has in the past. Yeah, and I think that's the. I mean, that's part of the, uh, part of the point of this discussion mm. today is, is you know, the index is a is a tool for you know potentially catalyzing the, the broader global d d development community to rethink how we think how, how development is, is traditionally perceived, right? And 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 what is the extent to which this index or other index, the Human Development Index, the Happiness Index. How, how can all these different tools be used more broadly to, to rethink the way that, uh, I think in many ways we've been stuck in a rut for many years insofar as how we conceptualize what does development really mean? I don't know if anyone wants to comment on and, that. Uh, I'd like to remark regarding the sustainability. Uh, private sector here is a driver to, move, to uh, link or to, to move ahead from the different tire because uh, if we bring the standards that we use uh, in the, in developed market into the other in the market that is uh, with have less capability, and we use worldwide standards, we will help to to move ahead and uh, and contribute to uh, policy decision maker understand the uh, implement the measures necessary. So, and and again, what you said, all the index are not perfect. It's just an indicators then you need to use those indicators to move into the real life and promote the right policies to make uh, the, the, the change happen. Other questions from the, from the audience? And as you, as you see, as I've threatened, I have plenty, plenty more myself. Uh, yes, in the back row. Hey, um, my name is Rebecca. Um, in the map that's displayed right now, I guess the 2015 rankings, some of the most interesting countries, uh, complex countries like Democratic Republic of Congo, Papua New Guinea, and in Latin America, Haiti, don't have rankings. They're listed as not applicable. 
Is that because the countries themselves, the governments, decided to opt out of this index because the data is difficult to, you know, uh, aggregate? And how do you plan to include those countries that probably need the index the most? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we're obviously still in the rollout phase. Um, you know, we're, we're in year three. The first year was only a, a ha about 50 countries uh, or less, and, and now we're up to 140. I mean, I think the key is that there's enough data of sufficient reliability that we can compare countries at least, you know, roughly on, on a similar basis. And I think those that have been left out have, is mostly because we haven't had data that's either timely enough or uh, rigorous enough to, to feel confident in using them. I think, you know, I, I, as I say, I, I think if you look at, I mean, I, this extraordinary report that came out of the UN um, in the last about six, seven months ago on, on the data challenges facing the Millennium Development Goals and now the Sustainable Development Goals and just showing how in very large parts of the world you simply are using either a model or an estimate um, for for the data on whether these goals are being achieved. Um, you know, it tells you how big a challenge the world faces in terms of, of in, improving its data collection so that we can actually tell what policies are working and what aren't, and which is why I think this whole, one of the, one of the potential benefits of what's going on with uh, the shift to smartphones in the developing world over the next few years is that we, if we think it through now and embed in that technology um, some kind of strategy for, for generating publicly useful data in a way that respects the privacy of the uh, individual consumer. Um, you know, I think we could tackle some of those data deficit problems and, yeah. and, and get much better policy analysis coming out of that. And it's, now is the time to be really uh, working very hard on that. And I hope that we, uh, the social progress imperative can play some kind of role in that. I just have a question for you to follow that mm. up because I think that's very exciting. Mm. Right? First, you're putting pressure on the governments that don't produce the data to get into the rankings. But the idea of the public-private um, mm. partnerships to gather this data, do you have a couple examples of some exciting developments or you know, data points that could give us insight on outcomes that we want to achieve? I'm just thinking you know, commuting times could be something that we measure, mm. having telephone data. And that's an interesting. Right. Well, I mean, I, again, I, I've well. been, I mean, this is, this is... I said Washington, D.C. wouldn't do too well. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a little tangential, but I mean, obviously the best known example we've had so far is Google's flu trends work, where mm. simply Google discovered that if you use uh, the frequency of searches for, with words with the word flu or cold or something in, it's a, it was a quicker indicator of the outbreaks of flu than anything that was coming out of the WHO or the CDC. And they've done a number of other projects in that area. Um, I've also been fascinated to look, someone, uh, Matt, Matt Flannery, who created Kiva, or co-founder of Kiva, the international lending platform. He's now got experimenting with mobile phone-based lending in Kenya. And they just simply made loans available to anyone that applied and looked at the repayment rates. And, and then and they've been doing big data analysis of who's a good credit and who isn't. And it turns out the people with 100 or more Facebook friends were much more reliable in paying things huh. back. And, I, and, and, and that, you know, what, 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 you know th these are entirely new concepts and things that we're able to get a handle on. And, and, and the, 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 the challenge, I think, is to think about how does that 
Are there similar experiments that we could do or, or, or big data uh, insights that we can mm. glean around the sorts of questions we're trying to answer with the mm -hmm. social progress index? Well, it really shows the, the, the important role of the private sector insofar as helping to, to think through uh, some of these mm. data points that traditional measurements of data don't allow us to don't allow Yeah, us and the, to, private, to I mean, so the private sector has, is, is now f you know, sitting on vast amounts of data that probably it isn't even thinking about you know, what are the public useful uses yeah. for this data that, that could actually, it, and it might not cost very much, particularly if you embed it in the DNA of the technology from the start that these, these things are going to be collected automatically. I mean, I think there's obviously, you have to address the privacy issues yeah, and the cybersecurity questions as well at the same time, which I think make people feel nervous about anything that's going to be released more broadly. But I think that may be part of the solution to that concern is if you can actually, as the private sector, come out with something where you're really demonstrating how this is benefiting public policymaking. Yes, other concrete example is uh, when governments implement immunization programs and they need a second shot to address the, 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 uh, the completion of, of the vaccination, uh, working together, private and public sector, use a mobile network mm -hmm. just to send a message and, and, uh, and uh, help to address, to complete the, 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 scheme, of, the scheme of vaccination. And, mm -hmm. and this also addressed to have a better rate of immunization. This mm -hmm. is a good example of how we can work together. Yeah. No, sorry. Yeah, uh, we're time for one last uh, short question, and um, and then we'll wrap up, please. Especially for Matthew. Can you um, say, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm Raul Gauto from Fundación Avina. Thank you. Um, we see that um, in Latin America, in Africa, and some other places, um, ideology and religious fundamentalism is hampering development and social progress. How do you think this new tool, the social progress in this, can help us to overcome those issues? Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, there's obviously an, on, an ongoing dialogue between the religious communities of the world and and those that are sort of more secular-driven policy uh, uh, organizations. And, I, you know, I think it's interesting to see the new pope coming out of Latin America using a different um, set of emphases in what, in, in what he says about certain social policies. And I think, you know, what, what we... We can't really answer that question. As I say, I think we have adopted a framework that is, is, I think, is, is, is fundamentally based on a, progress, a, a, a liberal, a broad view, of, an, an inclusive view of progress that includes things like we, we do think that as part of opportunity, women, empowering women, um, LGBT equality so that people can choose how they live their lives. You know, is part of the framework, but as I say, I think within that, you know, you can choose which bits you emphasize as a government or whatever, and some countries are going to say, culturally, um, we're less um, likely to pursue certain policies to advance what the social progress index measures than others. And I think what the index can do is expose that more fully uh, when they make those choices and, and hopefully you know, we may get more empirical evidence on whether countries that are, say, uh, very positive about LGBT rights and empowering women 
whether their economies, for example, perform better, whether they uh, are less prone to uh, violence, revolution, whatever. I think these are all these sort of empirical questions that over time, as we get a track record on these indices and we can see how policy changes feed through, you know, we're going to be able to get much more rigorous uh, conclusions. And I think, you know, then, as I think has happened a bit with the Catholic Church, you know, when you're making policy or making uh, advocating, advocating behavior that you know, does have an economic price or has a price in terms of how the society functions, you know, maybe you get a feedback from your members that they want to change and um, maybe the leadership eventually hears. And maybe if, they, if you actually do see, as we've seen in some countries in the Middle East, for example, where they scored very badly on the opportunity level, a number of the countries that then went through the Arab Spring, um, you know, it seems like that was to some extent a leading indicator that they would have problems. Now, it hasn't been a leading indicator that they would find solutions to those problems that worked. So that's another yeah. whole other set of questions. But you know, if you're a leader of an organization that is espousing a set of positions, and um, you know, we can, we can uh, show some, shed some light on whether those policies are likely to be sustainable in terms of being popular with the people of your country, uh, that's probably a useful piece of information. I think, uh, Matthew, I think we could probably now, with, with that question, we mm. could probably be here for another hour mm. on, on this point. So, um, but in the, interest, in the interest of time, um, I want to please join me again, and, and please join me in thanking the, the panelists, and again, thanking Julie Katzman for her excellent uh, introductory mm. remarks. And I'd like to as well um, thank the Skull Foundation again for their support of this event, and uh, Maria Fernanda Perez in the, in the first row here, who uh, really is the one who, who put together this, this entire event. So thank you, Maria Fernanda, and thank you everyone for, for being here with us today.